0: For the reading of the scripture, we have two texts today from the gospel according to Luke and from Paul's letter to the church of Colossae. So we'll begin with Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, he, that's Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, wife of Herod's steward Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. And then Paul writes to the Church of Colossae in chapter 1, Verses 9 through 14. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins this is the word of the lord thanks be to god you can be seated so friends last week we began an exploration on the biblical theme of transformation how jesus calls us to a life of transformation as we follow behind him so that he can make us to become And we learned that submission is key to this transformation. Just like we might submit ourselves to the orthodontist to get straight teeth or to a great hair designer, so too are we to trust the work of the master Jesus to transform us. To transform us. And if you didn't hear this message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it because I'm building on what was said last week. So as we're on this journey, we're looking at, for an example, the story of Eustace Clarence Scrubb, C.S. Lewis' fictional character from the book The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I highly recommend the Chronicles of Narnia for all of us to both enjoy and grow in faith in reading. So as we hear this story, let us continue to see how Eustace is doing. So last week we learned that He was visited by his cousins, Lucy and Edmund, who had already experienced the world of Narnia and the life-changing presence of of the lion Aslan, and the three children have been magically washed, literally by water, into the Narnian Sea, which we see here, and they're rescued and they join the crew of the Dawn Treader. Now, this transition is hard, especially and unsurprisingly for Eustace, who I did describe last week, unapologetically, as a land-loving, whiny face, because remember, he's fictional. So here, today, we're going to hear some excerpts from Eustace's diary that Quinn is going to read to us.
1: September 3rd, the first day for ages when I've been able to write. We had been driven before a hurricane for 13 days and nights. The night we lost our mast, there's only a stump left now, though I was not at all well, they forced me to come up on deck and work like a slave. Lucy shoved her oar in by saying that Reepicheep, the mouse, was longing to go, only he was too small. Today the beastly boat is level at last and the sun's out. We have food enough, pretty beastly stuff, most of it, to last for 16 days. The real trouble is water. Two casks seem to have got a leak knocked in them and are empty. On short rations, half a pint a day each, we've got enough for 12 days. There's still lots of rum and wine, but even they realize that would only make them thirstier. September 6th, a horrible day. Woke up in the night knowing I was feverish and must have a drink of water. Any doctor would have said so. Heaven knows I'm the last person to try and get any unfair advantage, but I never dreamed that this water rationing would be meant to apply to a sick man. So I just got up and took my cup and tiptoed out of the black hole we sleep in, taking great care not to disturb Caspian and Edmund, for they have been sleeping badly since the heat and the short water began. I always try to consider others when they are nice to me or not. I give out all... I got out all right into the big room, where the rowing benches and the luggage are. The thing of water is at the end. All was going beautifully, but before I had drawn a cupful, who should catch me but the little spying mouse, Reap? I tried to s- explain that I was going to the deck for a breath of air. The business about the water had nothing to do with him. He asked me why I had a cup. He made such, <coughs> he made such a noise that the whole ship was roused. They treated me scandalously. I asked, as I think anyone would have, why reap was stinking about the water cask in the middle of the night. He said that he was too small to be any use on deck. He did sentry over the water every night so that one more man could go to sleep. Now comes the rotten unfairness. They all believed him. Can you beat it? So we've learned that after the storm,
0: the crew of the Dawn Treader had to ration water one cup a day per person. Eustace, who is not feeling well, tries to steal more water. If you read the story, or even if you watch the film, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you recognize pretty early on that Eustace is not okay as he is. I mean, not only here is he describing his act of thievery, he is also, in the meantime, describing himself as someone who has deep affection and care for other people in the midst of his thievery. And he doesn't really participate in the life on the ship. Maybe you notice this. He doesn't want to help. He just wants to observe from afar and make opinions about it. We'll get to this a little bit later. Last week in my message, I also said, I said that all of us too, we're not really okay as we are, even if we're not as annoying as Eustace. Now, hearing that we're not okay as we are might be disturbing to hear in this world that tells us, I'm okay, you're okay. Perhaps that disturbs you even theologically. I mean, maybe you have been told, or you've told others, that God loves you exactly as you are. Now, I affirm that God, our good Father in heaven, does love us. But God loves us enough to want us to change. Imagine a good parent standing over a two-year-old having a tantrum. Does the parent love the two-year-old? Yes. But does the parent want the two-year-old to remain in that state? No. (laughs) God wants us to mature, just like a good parent wants their children to mature. And maturation is possible. Transformation is possible. After all, all of us are people who have been created in the image of God. It's our responsibility and our privilege to be people who carry God's name, who bear God's name, people who, by our words and our action, represent the creator of the universe. But transformation takes submission, as we talked about last week. It takes a willingness to change. It takes a willingness to learn. And it also takes participation, God, through the presence of the Holy Spirit and through our own willful choice to say yes, can and will transform us. So let's consider today the story of transformation from the Gospels. Let's read it again. This is Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. We don't read much about these women in the Gospels, but we do know that first, Jesus has healed every one of them, Specifically, we learn about Mary from Magdala. That's that's where she's from. That's not her last name. So Mary from Magdala, from whom Jesus cast out seven demons, and he healed the other women in ways we can only imagine. Joanna, Susanna, and many others. How many? We don't know. I'm thinking at least more than twelve. And all these women, Jesus has healed. And it's it's rather easy, though, to skip over this passage because there isn't a teaching or a parable or a mighty deed. This is still, though, a crucial text because the inclusion of these women as followers of Jesus here in this text, and even more so in the reality that it happened, is amazingly countercultural for the first century. And not only that, the text shows us that these women are bankrolling Jesus' ministry. At least one of them named here, Joanna, who's married to Herod's household manager, is a person of means. These are women who have been rescued from evil spirits, who have been healed from illnesses or disability, and they're now able to participate in the mission of Jesus, the proclamation of the kingdom of God. They have been healed, and now they're following and participating. Now, this aspect of Jesus' ministry is rather behind the scenes to us, right? These women aren't mentioned much. They're not players in major dialogues except for one. But without them, this ministry of Jesus couldn't have happened. They were vital. And as they served, supporting the other disciples and Jesus, they were changed. Now, how do we know about this transformation? It's not really focused on in the Gospels, but we do see a cause and effect. Because when Jesus was arrested, we can remember that most of the 12 other disciples ran away. But it's these women who stick with Jesus through his crucifixion and through his burial. It's these women who go to the grave and then testify to his resurrection. Mary Magdalene is called affectionately the apostle to the apostles. She was the first to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. We can see texts in the Gospels that, that affirm this transformation, right? Here we learn some of their other names, too. So another Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene again in the burial, Mary Magdalene again, and another Mary, Mary the mother of Joseph. That is not a typo. It is, that is his name. It's Joseph. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and other Mary women who told about the resurrection to the apostles. And then Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, apostle to the apostles. Now, the purpose of me mentioning this, isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with women versus men or anything like that. I am sure that Jesus also had unnamed male disciples. But it is interesting to note that these women who faithfully stuck with Jesus went from serving to witnessing. They grew in their faith as they followed. They were transformed. Now, maybe we can't see it as clearly as we can witness Peter's transformation, for example, but it's there and it's vital. And that can provide some hope for us, I think. I mean, it's easy to read the story of the Gospels and be awed by Jesus' power or to read the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's letters and hear what was going on then and think, wow, if only I were there. If only I knew Christ as, a, as an embodied person. If only I could literally follow in his footsteps. And then it can be easy to look down on our own selves now and whatever role or vocation we have as a, as a student or a grandparent or a manager, or an accountant, or as a business owner. Roles and vocations that kind of don't seem very exciting, that are more like supporting roles, where you just do what needs to be done. You go to school, you fold the laundry, you go to a job you're truthfully not too geeked about, getting the dinner, balancing the checkbook, cleaning the bathroom, helping a family member down the stairs, going to the doctor, It can become kind of mundane. But it's in these ways, these supporting roles, that Jesus can use us and that Jesus can transform us. I mean, so much of this daily stuff is necessary because we are living biological creatures who were created to be embodied, created to be physically alive. And this means that these support roles are necessary because the water does have to be clean. Our shoes do wear out. I mean, someone has to get dinner. We are exactly like the apostles in that way. We have the same physical needs. But in our culture, we can easily forget the necessity of these support roles we play and just focus on the important roles, the roles of key leaders or politicians or celebrities or billionaires sending people into space, people who solve problems or claim to, influencers. And when we realize that we will never be one of those people, it's really easy to settle into a life of observation rather than attentive participation. It's especially easy now with these little machines in our pockets to observe others. It's easy to observe and then have an opinion about an event a thousand miles away or what so-and-so is wearing. It's easy to observe from afar and live a mediated and distracted life. And our phones help us do this so well. A life of distraction, thinking about the next thing, obsessing about the news, thinking about an outfit we saw on Instagram. And in this life of observation, we participate less and react more. We are less attentive to what is around us, but way more opinionated. You know what I'm saying? Less proactive and more reactive, and the pandemic has only made this worse. Churches continue to stream services, and it's really easy to not go to church now. It is easy to bow out from participating and observe from afar, to be distracted while we watch with another tab open. It's easier to have an opinion about the sermon or the song choice and then swipe left when we're bored, at least metaphorically. And I I would say I don't think we necessarily intend to do this all the time, but we have been primed for it, and we're just reacting, sitting back, observing, having an opinion. But my friends in Christ, I want to tell you this. Opinioning, which is a word I just made up, opinioning is not participating. And Jesus didn't call us to have an opinion. He called us to submit to him and to participate. And I want this to be so freeing for you because in our culture, we are judged by our opinions and we judge others by their opinions. But God doesn't call us to be people of opinions. He calls us to be people of obedience and submission, to be people of attentive participation. This can free us. We are free to be transformed from opinionated people to participatory people. I want to tell you a story about a participatory person. We call him now Brother Lawrence, and he has absolutely no relation to me or my husband. Brother Lawrence was a 17th century French monk. He served at a monastery in Paris as a cook, and then later, when his leg became ulcerated, as a sandal maker, and he joined the monastery partly because he was trying to escape what he called troubled thoughts. Brother Lawrence was definitely a behind-the-scenes, support role kind of person, but he participated in the life of the community, as he was called, and and because of his conversations with people and his letters to people, he slowly became a sought-after counselor because of the peace and wisdom he provided to others centered in Christ. His writings and teachings were compiled after his death into this little book, The Practice of the Presence of God, which is a beautiful little book. It is written about him that he would begin his day in prayer, and then he went to work in the kitchen. He gave careful thought to exactly what he had to do, all the separate tasks his work required, and how and when he would do each one. And then he spent all the little spaces between each task in prayer. He did the same with his time before and after work. That when he first began his work, he said to God with childlike trust, Oh my God, since you are with me, and I must now, being obedient to what you have commanded, pay attention to this external work. I ask you to grant me the grace to continue in your presence. With this goal in mind, may my work prosper with your help. I give it all to you as well as all my love. I mean, look at the balance that he had. Participation and prayer. And his participation is attentive and full of care. I mean, wouldn't you want sandals made by this guy? Made by someone with this philosophy of life and this centeredness on Christ? I mean, Brother Lawrence is living into Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae that I read earlier. I'll read it again, a different translation here. We're asking God to fill you with the knowledge of what he wants in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This will mean that you'll be able to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Lord, And so give him real delight as you bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of God. I pray that you'll be given all possible strength according to the power of his glory so that you'll have complete patience and become truly steadfast and joyful. And I think that's happened with Brother Lawrence. He is a joyful person, if you read his book, you can tell. And his work was good and attentive and fruitful, even though he was just a dishwasher. I imagine him standing at that 17th century sink, looking out the window as he wipes out a cup, praising God for his presence with him in that little kitchen. And whenever the troubled thoughts would fill Brother Lawrence's mind, he would redirect them to attend to Christ. He taught that, and this is another quote, it is a shameful thing to quit his conversation, to think of trifles and fooleries. We should feed and nourish our soul with high notions of God, which would yield us great joy in being devoted to him. This is attentive participation, becoming steadfast and joyful, because this is one of the ways that Jesus transforms us through attentive participation. And this is what we hear in Paul's prayer to the Church of Colossae. Paul's all-hands-on-deck prayer. We can remember when you read many and most epistles, whenever it says you, it's often plural. Assume it's plural. I mean, this isn't to just one person, to you or to me or to somebody in the church. This is to the whole group. We are all called to submit and participate as a group. And remember, this goes against the idolatry of individuality in our culture Because, bringing it back to Eustace here, when you're in a storm, or even a big wind, and you're on a boat with sails and oars, you have to work together for the good of the group, all hands on deck. But Eustace doesn't participate. Maybe nobody had ever invited him to, you know? But, and even though this story is set in the 1940s, which can kind of seem like a long time ago to us, it is just as affected by Enlightenment ideology as we are today. Because to himself, Eustace is being true. Eustace is living his own life fully. Maybe they'd say to him, You be you, Eustace. But that is not how the kingdom of God works. Jesus, as Paul writes, has rescued us from the power of darkness and put us in a new kingdom. And in this new kingdom, we are freed. That's what redemption means it means to be freed. We are freed and our sins are forgiven so we can work without worry, we can participate without keeping score. Because we don't carry this burden of sin anymore. Christ has freed us from both the guilt of sin and also from being enslaved to sin. And so we can live lives worthy of the Lord. We can bear fruit in good work. This is participation, active, attentive participation through God. Because God is at work, and his people, us, are also at work. And so this is what it can look like in our lives. Think about for a moment your daily work. What do you do each day? Do you spend most of your time being a student in sports practices? Maybe you're a caretaker. Maybe you spend most of your time caring for a parent or a child or numerous children. Maybe you go to the office or the office at home. And as you do these things, since this is where God has put you now, how do you do this work attentive to the presence of Christ. How do you attentively participate in the work of Jesus that's right in front of you, just like the dishes in front of Brother Lawrence? How do we attentively participate in the work Jesus has directed us to at this very moment? So rather than wanting to sit back and observe from afar or being distracted by your phone or the news, practice attentive participation because it is through this behind-the-scenes work that the Holy Spirit is active, because this is how the early church spread. There were cells of small people gathering in homes, practicing attentive participation, feeding the poor, rescuing babies from garbage dumps, speaking the story of God's rescue to people that they met in normal, everyday environments. I mean, we live in a culture that celebrates celebrity and notoriety, headline after headline. But these are simply distractions. They are trifles and fooleries, as Brother Lawrence would say. Go back to these women, Mary of Magdala, Joanna, Susanna, all the Marys. (laughs) Their work was to listen to Jesus, to serve physically, physical work, and to follow him. Attentive participation Jesus helped them as they did this and they helped Jesus. And in this mutual serving, the women were both transformed and the mission of Christ began. And us too, we can attentively participate in our daily life. Maybe you need to focus on the attentive part, put your phone down. Maybe you can participate in church, active worship, serving alongside others. And you know, you don't have to know theology or have chapters of the bible memorized to serve here you just need a willing heart and an open spirit to serve and not only can god use that to transform us we can develop new relationships with others and as we participate through our daily activities through the work and care we do for other people attentively christ will transform us because it's how you do it that matters attentively as unto the lord jesus is inviting us to participate and through our participation, he will continue to transform us. So as we read this passage in, in Luke, there were many others, right? Is this an invitation for us? Can we be among the unnamed many others? Participation is necessary for transformation. As I was preparing for this message, I was thinking and asking my colleagues, what stories do you know of how God has transformed people through Attentive participation. And so I'd like to invite Craig right up just to share about God's work in his own life through his participation in the ministry of mountaintop ministries. So, Craig, thank you for joining us. And I would love to first hear you share. Maybe for those who are not familiar with Mountaintop Ministries, just share briefly uh, about what Mountaintop is and what it does.
2: Okay, um, Mountaintop is a ministry located in the Cumberland Mountains of Tennessee. If you've ever taken the, the trip by car from here to Disney World, and you go through Tennessee, you go up one side of the mountain and down the other side of the mountain. And the mountain at the top, that's Grundy County. And that's where um, Mountaintop is located. And um, Mountaintop um, has uh, two main ministries for uh, the volunteers. Uh, one is to do home repairs. Um, a lot of work needs to be done in houses there. And the other is to run um, uh, vacation Bible schools. I guess the closest thing you could uh, equate it to Uh, for the children in the county. Mm
0: -hmm. So, Craig, uh, tell the story of when you first decided to go on that trip with Mountaintop in 1996.
2: Ah, okay. Um, In 1996, I was on the Missions and Outreach Committee, I think we used to call it then. And uh, at the time, our advisor was uh, Pastor Jim Kramer, who was here for a number of years. And uh, he thought that people from this church should go on mission trips, which was a lo- novel idea for us c- because, up until then, I was more or, le- more or less uh, helping with supporting covenant missionaries and professionals like that. Uh, so uh, he came up with uh, two trips. One was uh, to Alaska, which I didn't go on. Um, but some of the, oh, at the first service, uh, Tess Orbell had gone on that trip. And the other trip was to uh, Tennessee, to mountaintop. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a little more m- my speed, you know. So I, I went along with them for that.
0: Mm-hmm. And when we sat down this week to discuss uh, your experience, you shared with me a realization that you had as you were helping people build and yeah. their
2: homes. Yeah, because uh, um, I had been coming to this church since I was three years old. And um, my first mountaintop experience, I was 46 years old. And th- despite all that time being around here, I, I had never fully understood grace. Um, I was basing my life on a point system that, you know, you, you do good things and you, you gain points. And if you do something that's uh, not that great, you get some more points and you get back to the straight and narrow again. And um, up up until this point, uh, I never really understood grace. Um, I understood it when the volunteers there and I were doing things for the people in the county and realizing that they could never return what they had done, you know, what we had done for them. And I realized that what we were doing was what Jesus had done for us, that um, he had redeemed us. And the other part of it was I had always thought of, yes, Jesus came and redeemed the world, but I had never put together that Jesus had come to redeem me. So, I mean, it sounds a little selfish, but it was true. I just didn't realize that, that um, closeness, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and share how your life was different. What what changed in your life after this um, participation that led to transformation?
2: I was uh, ready to get involved in other things, and um, luckily we had um, uh, two mentors of mine, uh, Bill Bristow and Jim Carr, uh, who were here. And Jim Carr, especially, was uh, he was what you call a stem winder. He could find things that you could volunteer for, and he would get on the phone and go through his list. And I was on his list, and um, he'd say, "Okay, this is the opportunity we have, and just tell me yes or no, but don't tell me maybe, because if you tell me maybe, then I gotta call you back again sometime." And uh, so, you know, it was, uh, and you know, if you said no, he's Fine, you're, you're busy. So they you go. And someone else. Um, but uh, another thing that I hadn't thought about, that I should have, what uh, Jim McCormick reminded me of um, uh, in 2005, I was able to retire, which is a great thing because <laughs> because work always got in the way of going to mountaintop, which I could go to like three times a year sometimes. Um, and um, so I retired in June 2005, and in September of 2005, along came Hurricane Katrina. And at that time, I was still on the Mission Outreach Committee, and I was part of the committee uh, that, of a number of the churches in the area, worked on um, gathering materials for uh, in Mississippi, a little town that pretty much got wiped out uh, by the uh, hurricane and the tidal wave, I guess, that came afterward. And um, so we went about gathering up, drinking water and that kind of thing. And then there came the meeting at, at this uh, committee that, okay, we've been doing this, you know, sending stuff down there. It's about time that some of people from our churches go down there. And who's been on a mission trip? Uh, Yeah, I've been uh, doing that. And so uh, I was uh, just uh, glad that, you know, God put me in that position. And I was able to help with organizing uh, people from uh, Illinois around the suburbs here to go down to uh, Mississippi.
0: to be transformed. By your Spirit, move our minds to be attentive. Set our minds on you. May we be among the many others.